It's Detroit Auto Show Week, but no one is focusing on the cars. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Bill Barker. We're going to do a little Motley Fool Money car talk. How are you doing today, Bill? Good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> of course. Well, this week is the Detroit Auto Show. This used to be the big can't-miss event. Everyone would come into town, uh, big reveals. It just doesn't feel the same way anymore. Is this because everything gets leaked online? What's happening here? Uh, it, that's part of it. Uh, the, the foreign uh, automakers don't show up uh, at the show yeah. anymore. So it's it's uh, a U.S. Uh, regional kind of event rather than an international or, or even national event. There are competing auto shows outside the country and inside the country. Uh, still Detroit, still the biggest show in, in this country. But uh, on top of that, as you mentioned, you find out the news in other venues. Uh, there is no need to necessarily wait around uh, for the auto show. Uh, the automakers can get a bigger bang for their buck uh, online at times. Uh, but there's there's still something to the show. There's still things there. There's It's still an event. Oh, yeah. It's definitely still an event. I used to go to the uh, Los Angeles auto show and definitely... Definitely, still, definitely fun to see those concept cars and see the see the new vehicles in in person. So I think there's still something there. But for for this week, it's even different than than you know just that because we've got this United Auto Workers strike kind of looming over our heads. This is against the big three: Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which is the parent company for uh, Jeep and Chrysler. Deadline tonight, 11:59 p.m. And one of the things that uh, we've been hearing about is the possibility of a targeted strike. So this is a little different kind of thing. Instead of all 150,000 workers walking out uh, as a united front, they're going to try to do smaller strikes at key assembly uh, plants. And part of the reason they're doing that is because if they had everybody walk out, it would deplete the strike fund, which is what you know allows the workers to strike. And that would be depleted in about 11 weeks. So that sounds to me like maybe they're expecting that this is going to drag out a bit. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, game of uh, 3D chess here, uh, given that you can cripple uh, virtually all production by just targeting uh, the transmission or or engine uh, part of the the assembly, which is done different places than some of the other uh, assemblies. So uh, you don't need to strike everywhere to more or less uh, bring everything to a halt. And so if that is done and you just use uh, a very small percentage of your workers to go out on strike and take uh, that hit, uh, then the other assembly plants are going to have to likely shut down, uh, lay off workers, and then the workers, uh, depending on how certain things play out and how things are are adjudged, uh, can go and collect unemployment against the state. And uh, rather than uh, dip into their own pockets or into the pocket of the the strike fund, uh, and then the state gets uh, involved and uh, they uh, put that much more pressure on uh, the parties to get together. And they, they they're not going to want to be footing the bill uh, no. for this if they don't have to. Uh, so you get all the politicians involved, and you know uh, things things get interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the difference, too, between it used to be that uh, a car would be, I mean, way back in the Henry Ford days, the car would get built on one line. And, you know, in today's world, a car can get built in many pieces across multiple countries. So it's striking as a different thing than it used to be. Yeah. And, uh, of course, for a while there, the problem uh, on production was getting access to chips, uh, yes. and that crippled uh, the industry for some time during the early earlier days of, of COVID. So, and then those aren't even produced for the most part in the country at all. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of different ways to bring production to a halt. Yeah. So let's dive in a little bit to some of the key demands, uh, wage hikes of. Uh, I think it's between 30 and 40 percent over four years, uh, an end to the tiered system of wages. One thing that's kind of perked up everybody's ears is a 32-hour work week, but a 40-hour paycheck. And another thing that is really a sticking point is the union representation at EV factories. You know, the wage hikes sound like a lot, but uh, apparently some of the workers are making 20 to $25 an hour. Not much. I mean, in the in the old days, it always seemed like the car workers, the auto workers were paid a lot more than, you know, than you know, uh, other types of employees. So what happens here? Um, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is they don't want to set precedents, right? They don't want to, any contract that they set is going to be locked in for a long time. So it sounds like they're still pretty, pretty far apart. Do you think, do you think this is going to work out anytime soon? Uh, I don't, don't, think all the headlines point to it working out pretty soon. I'm not in the negotiating room, so no. I'm speculating here. Uh, it's a big ask when you come yeah. in and you say what we would like and what we, by the way, demand, right? Uh, that's the word used. We demand yes, 40% um, increase in pay, 20% right now, and then the other 20% to roll out over four years. And uh, we'd like to work 20% less of the time. That's a 75% increase per hour from the way I see them at. I mean, I, yeah. they want to get 40 hours of pay for th- a 32-hour work week, uh, and they want the, each of those uh, the nominal hours, uh, you know, up 40%. So that that come in, ask for a lot at the beginning, then you know, the company says, I don't think so. I think that's too much. (laughs) You know, it's time we knew the contract was coming up. We knew we're going to be in position of having to raise uh, wages and and be prepared for that. But that's and and then there's actually that's that's only sort of the beginning. I mean, there are health benefits and there's um, you know defined or or, sorry defined uh, benefit plans, uh, old pension uh, plans that were largely uh, changed in uh, 2007. So that is only the beginning of, of the requests, demands. And uh, so that's given how large the demands are, uh, that's going to determine how long I think it takes to find the right place in the middle. Yeah, it all, it all, it all comes down to compromise. And at the center of this, you've got United Auto Workers President Sean Fain. Uh, he's been his his line has been you know record record profits should equal record contracts which you know the the car makers have had record profits in in recent quarters uh, new car sales were up a lot last quarter I'm not sure how sustainable that is because a lot of that was still pent up demand but Fain has accused Ford CEO Jim Farley of not providing a genuine counteroffer Farley has accused Fain of not being uh, present during a meeting that he was expected to attend. So you've got the big three. Is there a chance that one of them 
you know, are they a united front or is it is it there a chance that there's an a, an agreement between one and and not the others? Certainly, an, a, a chance. I think that at least one of the articles that I read said somebody was quoted as saying a 99 percent chance of a strike against Stellantis. Uh, Ford has has dodged strikes for almost 50 years, so they've got a better record and probably mm. want to maintain that. Uh, but you know, the the record profits is true in a nominal sense. Of course, you know, there's been inflation, so record profits don't necessarily translate to record real, you know, inflation-adjusted profits. These aren't – it's not a great business for an investor. It hasn't been as long as I can remember. This is why they uh, – car manufacturers typically trade at about seven or eight times earnings. Uh, they're just not uh, – you know, they pay out a, a fair dividend at times when they can. Uh, but General Motors has uh, returned less than 2% a year over the last 10 years for the stock, and uh, Ford is basically flat over the last 10 years, and including the dividend payments. Uh, Toyota, a little bit better than that. And, uh, you know, stockholders are not getting wealthy off of owning these stocks. Now, no. you know, the, the work of the company either goes to the benefit of the customers or the employees or the owners, uh, it could be management uh, rather than the the shareholders. But you know, the, the the shareholders are not the ones getting wealthy off of the labor of everybody in in the uh, car world. Uh, hopefully, people are getting fair prices for their cars. Hopefully, the workers are or will be earning a fair wage. Uh, but when you divide, the, historically, the division of all that has not left a lot of money. Uh, for shareholders. Mm. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room, or really the elephant not in the room, which is Tesla. Uh, so, if a, we know a strike would be bad news for the big three, but could it be good news for Tesla? And you know, I mean, Musk Musk is not a union fan, and so I start to wonder, like, if if there's a big win um, with the UAW against the big three, is that? Does that give uh, Tesla workers more incentive to to create unions? Does Tesla is there a benefit for Tesla here? There's a benefit for Tesla if nobody else is working. Well, yes, <laughs> they're, they're the ones. Producing. No cars are moving. It's good for them. <laughs> that that allows them to, uh, you know, capture a larger uh, chunk of of the market. Uh, if there's no competition, it goes on long enough. Something like that. Uh, Tesla, a big win for. The UAW here would uh, give them increased leverage on trying to unionize uh, Tesla. That hasn't been uh, successful, but uh, yeah. you know, Tesla dangling out uh, stock to its employees. Employees aren't uh, and haven't been in desperate need for better pay at Tesla uh, because of uh, you know the stock doing a lot of the work there rather than, right. you know, uh, which it does not, uh, you know, in, uh, for GM and Ford. Yeah, really, really good point about that. Let's take a quick tour through the auto show. Uh, not too much to report there, but one of the things, uh, the big new model debut was the redesigned uh, GMC Acadia. It's supposed to be a mid-sized crossover, but this thing is is, is kind of massive. It's got a 2.5-liter turbocharged four-cylinder. Um, at the event, uh, GM said, "Bigger is what customers want." Uh, certainly, I've seen the sort of the the fall of this the sedan. You know, everyone wants an, an SUV or a midsize. 
We know that gas prices have been going up lately. Is Are, are cars just going to keep getting bigger, or is there any chance that we go back to uh, maybe more you know, human-sized cars? I think there will be something for everybody. Uh, but there are more people who, in this country at least, who are locating into places where there's more land, more room, um, bigger driveways, bigger parking lots maybe. Uh, and, and so as people are you know, leaving to a degree uh, urban life and uh, able to work outside of the office and uh, uh, moving out, uh, building more houses away from the concentrated urban landscape, that allows bigger cars, gas, lower gas prices allow bigger cars, hybrid, once uh, the, the battery, real real price of, uh, you know, the battery purchase is uh, better as it gets better and better over time, that's going to allow, I think you go out 20 years, uh, assume battery technology keeps improving. Mm. People will just get bigger and bigger cars if, if it becomes you know, not much of a part of the expense uh, to actually move the car from place <laughs> to place, then yeah. why not get a bigger car? Reasons my smart car never caught on in the U.S. Well, uh, Ford also showed off its uh, F-150 pickups. Those are, you know, everybody seems to love the F-150. But they also announced that they're going to up the production of the hybrid version to about 20 percent of the uh, trucks produced for the 2024 year. Hybrid is interesting. I was reading this uh, Morgan Stanley survey of interns recently. Um, 39% of them said their next car would be a hybrid versus 23% for internal combustion and 22% for uh, electric. Is this is this range anxiety that is, you know, I mean, I feel like my, my, my generation has the range anxiety, but I think the younger people do too. Yeah, uh, you want... Uh to not pay much for gas, but to have gas when you want to go 500 miles. Yeah. Uh, and and so the hybrid solves some of that equation. And, you know, people are just taking a survey. I, I think that, uh, you know, watch what they actually do with their money rather than what they say when they're uh, surveyed. Uh, but the hybrid offers, you know, theoretically uh, everything. You can feel good about uh, your driving in a way that doesn't harm the environment as much when you're just driving around the city. Uh, hopefully you can uh, power up at, at your office if, uh, you know, if you go into the office. And, uh, but when you want to hit the road, you've got, that, you've got that option. So I'm not surprised by the numbers and uh, that internal combustion is a the lower and lower percentage of intended purchases by younger people. Sure. I mean, it's not showing up yet in the in the actual purchase numbers, yeah. uh, but that is sort of the direction that uh, people see their lives going. Yeah, definitely. Well, the fun part of auto shows is the crazy concept cars, the things that that may or may not ever ever make it to uh, a highway near you. As uh, as maybe listeners to the podcast know, I really want a flying car. Uh, we had a couple at the Detroit Auto Show, a company called Aleph Aeronautics. They unveiled its concept for a flying car. It's got four small engines where uh, where the wheels would go. It's electric. It's got a flying range of about 200 miles. Uh, talk about range anxiety. There was also an Air One uh, quadcopter at the show. There's a couple of companies working on this vertical takeoff and landing, which is something I've been following 
my question for you. Does vertical takeoff and landing vehicle, is, is that a car or is that a copter? What's, what's your take? Uh, depends which one it looks like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> depends. <laughs> Get me inside of it, and then I can tell you uh, whether it feels like a car or a copter. Uh, I don't know. You've you've been following this more than I have. What well, you you answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does depend a lot on the design. The one from a left really looks like a flying car because it's very sort of spread out like a luxury car with the with the. Um, the engine sort of in the in the wheel hubs, but others others anything that's got kind of wings and a and a and a big spoiler on the back, it kind of looks a little more like a copter. I think flying cars are always thirty years away. They've they've always been thirty years away. Well, we'll keep waiting. Thanks for your time today, Bill. Thank you. Another September has rolled around, kids are in school, and workers are in the office. Or are they? Ricky Mulvey and I break down the complicated dynamics behind the return to office push. Deidre, I think it's always an interesting time to check in on the back-to-work story. Well, especially in September, according to Fortune, one million Americans are supposed to make their return to the office. I will highlight the the words supposed to. This year's group includes Meta and Comcast, and it seems like most large companies have settled on sort of that two to three days a week hybrid schedule. But I think the big question this year is, will that kind of softer labor market maybe make these mandates a little bit more enforceable? Set the table. What's kind of the context in what's going on in the big macro of the job market right now? Well, we saw this last year, too, with a lot of mandates that came out in August of 2022, and then it sort of worked and sort of didn't. This year, as you mentioned, yeah, a bunch of companies have said, we want you back at least three days. A lot of people are in that sweet spot of, we'd like you to be in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because some companies are saying five days a week. Some companies are making different compensations for depending on where you live, how far out you are, if you can go to a satellite office, things like that. But yeah, the question is, is has the change in the job market put enough pressure on people that they really feel like they have to go back? Or is there going to be the same kind of pushback we saw last year? Yeah, next year is supposed to be the big year. I guess next year is always supposed to be the big year, starting <laughs> yeah. starting in 2020. According to a report from Resume Builder, 90% of companies plan to implement return to return to office policies by the end of next year. I don't know how these plans are going to go. I'd be curious to, to hear how you think they are at this point. But I think we're sort of in this uh, Lindy effect of remote work, where the longer the habit lasts, the tougher it is to quit. And as, as you mentioned, there's so many complexities. There's also so many work to re- workarounds with these mandates, right? Hey, we're only going to make you go into the office if you're X miles away from from the building. Maybe those statistics can be massaged a little bit. So perhaps I'm telling my employer that I'm living a bit further away than I actually am, or um, maybe my boss is a cool one and doesn't make me really go in as much as the other people, which creates some discontent within within the office space. I'm going down a rabbit hole, Deidre. Please stop me. <laughs> well, one of the things I think is what makes it attractive to go to the office. I mean, certainly we know the mandate and like keeping your job is attractive. But for example, this week, Amazon, they finally opened up the Lord and Taylor building. This was originally going to be WeWork's building uh, in New York City. It's beautiful old building, you know, old department store building. They just put out the renovation. It is gorgeous. But 
is that enough? Is working in a beautiful place enough? Is is having free food enough? Is having, you know, comfortable places to sit? What are the things that will incentivize people? I think that is a, a big question here. Oh, I think free food is huge. There's lots of LinkedIn influencers where it's like culture is not built around happy hours and free pizza. And I would handedly disagree with all of that. People are not quite different from mice. They will show up for a little piece of cheese. One of the big questions I think that, or the big answers that can come from this is what plays out in the actual data. I know you study real estate data quite a bit. You do it for fun, Deidre. I do. What is the real estate data? What, what stands out about how that return to office is going on a broad scale? Well, we've, I always look at the castle numbers, which is the people that make the the key cards, because that gives us a good look of, of who's swiping in. So they're back to work barometer. They publish it every week. It's at 47%. Now that's just cities. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the coastal environment and the middle of the country are really different when it comes to thinking about this. Data from JLL, since January, 1.7 million employees have been put under the new return to office requirements. But of course, you know, we, we don't we don't really know. But one of the things I found was interesting from CBRE was, are they tracking it? Are they tracking the, you know, the people who are in the office? Their data said 57% are tracking, but only 16% are actually enforcing. So that's the thing that I'm starting to think about is that there's a shadow thing here where you're not going to get in trouble maybe for not being in the office, but it is going to be noticed. And so that's the sort of thing that you don't hear about a lot in the beginning, but plays out over a longer period of time. Yeah, Alphabet, uh, Google's parent company, is is saying that att- office attendance is going to be tracked through performance reviews. I know a- Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, has has sort of said that what what is it? Basically, don't expect to have a job if you're not showing up to the office. But outside of those anecdotal examples, and I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how this plays out. A lot of a lot of employers aren't necessarily cracking down when it comes down to it. We'll see if that changes. A 2022 report from the Stanford Economic Policy found that 40% of managers are are just ignoring employees who don't comply with return to office mandates. 6% are actually firing people for not complying with it. And I, I understand the, the personal dynamics of it, right? Like if someone's not showing up to the office, in most cases it's not it's it's easier to just not deal with the issue, especially if they're if they're getting their work done. I think if you're an awesome employee and you you've been at the company a long time and you have a solid relationship with with your boss and with your coworkers, you probably get a little more wiggle room. If, you know, if if you're not that person, then you probably get a little less wiggle room. Or you got to find your own wiggle room. I I overheard someone on the Denver Public Transit explaining that his employer was essentially requiring employees to come into the office if they lived within X miles of the office. So he had a friend who had a cabin that was further away in the mountains in Colorado. So he just simply changed his address to the cabin, explained that he was renting out his house in the city. So therefore, he couldn't go to the office. Unfortunately, Deidre, I cannot follow up with him. But I will be. I think that might be a little emblematic of some of the situations that are playing out. One company that's very emblematic of the flexible office policy is WeWork. They're in a very interesting position is they are renegotiating their leases with their landlords. And for a troubled company, it seems like the market likes the steps that WeWork's taking right now. Well, I mean, the question I've asked myself is, was WeWork a great idea that just got too big? And is there a chance that this is the opportunity to right-size? So they've said they're going to, over the next 45 days, their CEO, interim CEO, David Tolley, put out a memo saying they're going to renegotiate and perhaps exit some markets. So they're trying to right size it and you know it it may work it's certainly going to put a lot more pressure on on uh, commercial real estate and that is that that's the thing i think a lot of people are watching 
Yeah, and WeWork tends to be the WeWork buildings tend to be concentrated in those central downtown business districts. I wonder if that's something they got wrong early on with these, uh, and maybe should have aimed towards the neighborhoods, vibier kinds of places that are closer to where people are, especially if they're not commuting necessarily to go be with their team members, but rather just be around other people. I think there's some interesting sides of the labor market playing out, though, right now, Deidre. One is in retail, one is at the top level, and then one is labor rights. So you have Walmart reducing starting pay for new hires by about a dollar an hour. Congratulations, Walmart. I'm glad you're saving money. You have a story from the Wall Street Journal where Boeing's CEO and CFO are working from home, even as managers are trying to get employees back to the office with, with happy hours, guest speakers, even visiting alpacas, the story in the Wall Street Journal says. And then you also have the summer of strikes that is still ongoing. The UAW, the United Auto Workers, might be going on strike soon, and that could be a huge story that continues to play out. And of course, the uh, the Hollywood strikes. Yes. And then you also have UPS, which resolved their strike, and then that made the news because uh, you know the the package for delivery drivers it was uh, one hundred and seventy thousand dollars, and of course, you know that that all of, that really sort of captured the news and captured the imagination of people. But yeah, it's. It is an interesting time because at one point you have you have this pressure on the on the we we know the job market's cooling. There's absolutely pressure happening there, but at the same time, I think em- employees also still have a lot of leverage, depending on on what what part of the industry they're in. Interesting to see how it um, continues to play out, and I will also be interested to see how the commercial real estate lenders how long they are able to live in a different reality. A gentleman named John Gates. The CEO of JLL's America's Markets told Yahoo Finance, quote, pre-pandemic occupancy levels will arrive about a year from now. Yeah. I would like to see when that year arrives. <laughs> that, that people have been saying that for about two or three years, which which makes me a little nervous. But I I still have a little bit of hope here that that we do end up going back to the office more. I think the hybrid thing is is going to play out. I think that there is a chance that we things have changed, but I'm not sure that things have changed as much as as we think. But maybe that's just me still owning office rate stocking. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.